Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, this week, a discussion on whistleblowers. This interview was one that I did for another podcast called Double Take, produced by the centre I work at, the Centre for Media Transition. But this discussion is particularly pertinent this week. There's been a fair bit of media attention on the upcoming trial of former military lawyer David McBride, who pleaded not guilty to five charges related to the leaking of material to the ABC, material which became the basis for the ABC reportage known as the Afghan Files, which was an investigation of Australian Special Forces troops. Whistleblowers can, of course, be an important part of a functioning democracy, and it's fair to say that our whistleblowers here in Australia have for many years now been under a concerted attack by the Australian government. One person who knows what this attack feels like is Bernard Caleri. Caleri and Witness K were pursued by the Australian government and our judiciary over calling out Australia for the illegal bugging of the East Timorese government. I spoke with Bernard Caleri and asked how it felt to have the full weight and the full power of the Australian Commonwealth come after you. Bernard Caleri, welcome to our new podcast and thank you very, very much for agreeing to be a guest. Can I begin by asking you, it must have been a massive relief when the new Labor government dropped its prosecution of you. You risked everything to blow the whistle, so to speak. How much longer could you have kept fighting, do you think? Well, I had a stellar legal team. I mean, the, I mean, this was an issue that attracted the whole profession, the law council, the professional bodies, my own bar, bar group in Canberra. But uh, Gilbert and Tobin, uh, still a law firm. I mean, you know, they're known to many people, uh, Gilbert and Tobin, Chair of Law at the University of New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And they uh, brought in a great cast of barristers uh, led by uh, Brett Walker, Paul Bolton, and uh, and, uh, Chris Ward uh, were the uh, senior counsel. There were others, David Jackson, now deceased, of course, and many others. I, I wouldn't have sustained it, and there's no way I could have battled this out without those lawyers, those wonderful lawyers. Well, and, and your experience, I imagine, would, would put the fear of God into other whistleblowers. I mean, over the decades we've seen many a witch hunt, prosecutions. You know, we've got Richard Boyle, who's facing prosecution for exposing ATO malpractice, David McBride for exposing alleged Australian war crimes in Afghanistan. You were pursued over revelations of Australian spying in Timor-Leste. You've endured more than 100 court hearings and, and dozens of judgments. Others would look at that experience and say, no thanks, wouldn't they? Um, look, uh, I... Was a, I think it's fair to say I was a senior respected member of the profession and that put me into a more elite category that most whistleblowers wouldn't be in simply because they wouldn't be resourced as well as I was by mm. the profession. And I'm very conscious that uh, 
the Richard Boyles and the David McBrides of this world don't have the same resourcing as I do. Yeah. Um, and Monica, I mean, uh, I reflect on the way it ruined my career. I mean, I'm, um, I'm 78, I'll be 79 in a month or two. Um, it, it just took the cream off my career. It, it in effect, ruined my career. Um, I may not have gone down in community regard, but it certainly left me with a staggeringly big mortgage. And although I had pro bono support, I had all the other costs of my practice. And, um, you know, the the uh, depredations of the federal government started long before the charges were laid against me. So, so Bernard, when you, when, when you, can I ask you, when you did what you did, did you expect that this would be the result? I advised Witness K that reasonably soon after he sought my advice that the activity, I can't say more about the activity because I'm still bound by Attorney General Christian Porter's national security orders. They've not been lifted. I'll just talk about the activity. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It was quite unlawful. No government requirement for such activity could be lawfully given, and therefore he couldn't be lawfully prosecuted, in in my opinion, um, because of the nature of the legislation that the legislation required uh, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service to be acting itself lawfully. Uh, It's a reasonably complex legal advising, but I was confident of that uh, when we took the matter to The Hague. Mm -hmm. Australia was obliged to appear at The Hague by law uh, due to terms in the Timor Sea Treaty 2002. But the attacks on me started then and continued. Um, So uh, charges being laid was the culmination of the cover-up by the national security clique. I'll call them a clique. Uh, They're almost untouchable. I must say that Mark Dreyfus's decision on the 6th of July uh, 2022 to put an end to the indictments against me using a very rarely, if ever used power in the uh, Federal Judiciary Act was very courageous uh, because this was clearly against the vengeful uh, opinion of the national security clique who were determined to prosecute me. So I'll come back to that question, though. When you gave Witness K the advice that you did give, did you anticipate that that what you went through would be the result? Well, Monica, you you bring the whole issue of whistleblower up with that excellent question. The the fact is that uh, Witness K was revealing criminality and uh, our common law over the centuries has always provided space uh, for there to be a lawful revelation of criminality. 
and that that wasn't to be in this matter. And so the real issue is it's the misconduct, uh, be it unlawful, improper, immoral, that a whistleblower, so to speak, speaks of. That is where the first response should lie. And I expected, with great faith in my uh, legal fraternity serving within government, and with some faith in the Federal Commissioner of Police, that Witness K's revelations would result there and then in an inquiry into unlawful conduct. Mm. So uh, it wasn't so much me being worried about my own skin, but me now looking at it naively when you see the nature of this untouchable group of national security um, people, uh, I believe that we would have a proactive federal police commissioner. Uh, One thing that, that very few people know is that we just hadn't prepared an appropriate confidential manner in which to pursue uh, Witness K's um, activity, we were also um, preparing a brief for the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. And yeah, Monica, would that have would that have would that have uh, changed the situation in which Witness K found himself in? Well, Witness K would have been uh, a key crown witness against. And always record this: people come forward mm. because they want action. I was a lawyer being employed to find a solution for a very moral and troubled individual. The solution I found was two phases. The first was to press Australia to uh, recognise misconduct Mm. and also to prepare a brief for the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. And that's what we were doing. And that's really where the fault lies. We don't have a proactive federal, in terms of these matters, a proactive federal police commissioner. Quite the reverse. Um, There's a very noted journalist who's written extensively on the inactivity and rather the uh, failure to respond uh, properly to the investigation of misconduct um, at ministerial level and below, Jack Waterford. Mm -hmm. Jack is a very experienced, awarded journalist, and he has chronicled for years the failure of the federal police to be proactive at top levels of misconduct, impropriety, and unlawful activity, reaching up to the very height of executive government. So, Bernard, can I ask you this? I mean, we we see ourselves as a nation... Uh, that doesn't much like wrongdoing by public officials. And we have a federal parliament that has consistently, regardless of who's in power, talked the talk on how corrosive misconduct is. When we've had people who've come forward as whistleblowers 
to do precisely that, blow the whistle, uh, they've found themselves in situations like you have just endured and Witness K has has suffered the the blunt end of that. How do you think that we're doing on the whistleblower legislation front? Because the patch it's a it's a pretty um it's a patchwork of largely inconsistent laws at the moment, isn't it? There's inconsistency across state and federal law as to what constitutes a wrongdoing or disclosable conduct, even. And it's confidentiality and secrecy requirements, which are also largely inconsistent depending on the jurisdiction. So where do we stand at the moment? Well, it's a cultural failure of responsible government. It's a cultural failure of accountable and transparent government. The whistleblowing issue is one part of the failure of democratic, responsive, accountable government in this country and in other countries. In in the United States, for instance, rewards are offered to whistleblowers, particularly in the corporate sector. Mm. Um, they, they are issues that have been looked at here. The challenge for us is to see whistleblowing as part of the failure of accountable government and the development of authoritarian methods to further fail transparent and accountable government. So do you think then that this new federal corruption body will make a difference? Can can that be the beginning of the cultural change that you're talking about? We're all very hopeful that it will be. There's an eminent uh, uh, person uh, of very uh, solid habits, uh, I can say, being put in charge in the nature of Paul Brerett and uh, KC. I uh, am so hopeful that it won't be loaded with politicised complaints. Uh, Mm. You know, the East Timor story involves not just an attempt to defraud an impoverished country, but it also involves a massive revenue loss to the Commonwealth. The Timor story and the activity I can't discuss were part and parcel of a massive revenue loss to Australia. It's a revenue loss that at the time might have uh, done away with uh, that generation's study debts. Mm. There's billions of dollars missing that went to the corporate world that was largely foreign shareholders, foreign to us Australians. Now, the funny thing is, is this old saying, if you've got a mortgage, the bigger it is, the safer you often are uh, with a a bank. And we're talking about an issue that involves billions of dollars and it's got nowhere. Kay and I have been prosecuted and we... And there's been no truth telling. There's been no proper inquiry. Mm. The ASIO raid on my chambers permitted the deletion of data from our uh, cha- uh, the servers in my law chambers. Mm-hmm. Coincidence or not, the brief we prepared 
you may say, in naivety, or the Commonwealth Director of Prosecutions disappeared. We lost it. It's totally. We could have recreated it, but by then we were absolutely underway in self-defence. We were under attack from the National Security clique. The overall issue goes to what um, uh, Andrew Podger and, and Michael Keating have written often enough about, by our distinguished former public servants, uh, about the values of the, in this case, the Australian Public Service. Mm. There, there, there has to be a composite reform and change in society in governance and Canberra isn't showing that. It's becoming a dynastic city, a bit like Washington. You've got second and third generation public servants. I don't belittle them in any way, but there's a comfort here. And whistleblowing is an uncomfortable task. And I, uh, I, 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 want, I want to come to that issue of cultural change in a moment, but I first want to ask you whether whether the scenario that you've that you've just described with the raid on your chambers, whether that is almost an, an example of what's wrong here, that we, we, what we see is that someone sets off the alarm, but the wrongdoing continues. It's hidden under government secrecy or national interest or, or even legal processes, and often the wrongdoer, which, you know, in these cases of government, doesn't even deny the wrongdoing, which happens to continue. Oh, of course. I mean, mean, (laughs) an unchastened government of Australia appeared at the Hague and ran a neither confirm nor deny. But does refusing then to protect the messenger draw attention away from the agents of crime? Yes. Of course, Monica. To me, whistleblowing's at the end of our concern. The beginning of our concern should be what has happened to evoke that whistleblowing and who is there to deal with what happened. The bureaucracy have an instinct to cover up. Uh, That's demonstrably true, I think. And we need those in power in the legal environment to break that issue open and deal with it. it All you need whistleblowing. It would take a fairly strong-willed government, though, to legislate for that degree of transparency and even criminal sanctions against wrongdoers, wouldn't it? I mean, what happened to criminal sanctions to the extent that they existed for conspiracy to conceal the crimes of the state as well as those who conduct the criminal, you know, those outside the state who conduct criminal activity which impact the state? Well, a sickening thing for Witness K was that he and I um, were prosecuted for conspiring to reveal secrets, which they never particularised in court. <laughs> Understandably so, it would invo- involve their admission. And uh, here it was, a good moral man came forward with a, a dreadful story and was prosecuted for coming forward. It it. It typifies that this case, it might be worth billions, but the cruelty of it, in my view, should be right at the forefront of the brief Paul Brereton has for this new integrity body. 
he and his good appointees need to prioritise the inquiries, the sort of international misconduct that Australia got up to can't be swept away. It's fully there in the region. Have you have you put it before Brereton or will you? Uh, I haven't yet um, because I'm bound still by Christian Porter's um, national security orders. They've not been lifted and therefore um, I don't have any immunity to press issues uh, that might constitute an offence. The prosecution might have been uh, stopped, uh, but the uh, gagging hasn't gone away, Monica. Right. So, Bernard, um, I mean, one of the other things that we're seeing now is that you know journalists who help expose the wrongdoing by publishing the evidence brought to them by whistleblowers, they're being prosecuted, which is also alarming. How, how has that come about, do you think, and why? And what's the impact of that modus operandi? It's authoritarian government, the wrong people getting into positions of power. It's hard to know, and of course I'm gagged, it's hard to know who was running this show. Was it a minister? Was it a bureaucrat? Were they conspiring? We we don't know uh, because there's no transparency. Mm-hmm. It's difficult, it's so difficult to get to the truth without robust inquiry. Yeah. But given, I mean, given the array of very, very powerful bodies associated with government, powerful public servants, as you've you've, um, alluded to yourself, you know, whose best interests presumably are served by stopping strong protections being legislated for people who do take the course of action, for example, that you took, that Witness K took, that McBride took. What what level of of, of will by government does it take to fix that kind of problem, to, to stand up to that array of very, very powerful interests? Well, I, I'm not alone in saying that I could name the six or seven people who run effectively a large part of the national security agenda of this country. None of them are elected, I assure you. And uh, that's why Mark Dreyfus was incredibly courageous and brave in dropping the prosecution against me without regard to their very strong opposition to that. I know that. Canberra is a small town. Mark Dreyfus did the right thing. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, that'll be something in his legacy that only those who know the powerful group who are in this city, how powerful they are, will understand. Let me give a parallel. For years and years, J. Edgar Hoover in Washington had more than his finger on the pulse. He had his finger on the democratically elected, as history has shown. There's a powerful group in this country who will not allow whistleblowing. 
they will, they made sure that all the brave, courageous young intelligence officers who inhabit our intelligence community now, necessarily so, have been intimidated by the sight of the wretched, morally injured Witness K. Don't so, forget, a great moral injury has been done to that brave veteran Australian. And just think of what the current generation of intelligence officers coming through think when they see what was done to Witness K. I understand. I understand. I understand, Bernard. Why you know you um, you obviously praised Dreyfus for the decision that he took to drop the prosecution against you. I guess the question here is. It won't the the proof of 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 braveness and and courage be in lifting the porter secrecy limitations on you and a referral of this case to the new federal corruption body? Yes, uh, I, that has to be the next step. I don't believe the attorney general can do it alone. Um, I believe in his decision. Uh, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong figured highly in terms of bilateral relations with Timor-Leste, but also there needs to be prime ministerial leadership. You know, people are saying there needs to be prime ministerial charismatic leadership on The Voice. Well, um, we need a spiritual ascent in other areas as well in politics, and um, they may be retired, there may be people who've left the this active bureaucracy, the active ministry, but we cannot allow this issue, the way we treated an impoverished nation in our region, to be swept under the carpet. There has to be a truth-telling. And I'm not into vengeance. Uh, I've seen injustice. I'm not uh, a bleeding heart. Um, I, I've taken largely most of it on the chin. Uh, it wrecked my career, um, but I feel so keenly for the man I advised as a lawyer, Witness K. So that's, and so uh, those who support whistleblowing also uh, very much, Monica, often uh, suffer moral injury too. And uh, it, it, it has to be said, though, doesn't it, Bernard? That I mean, there is a valid issue of governments being allowed in the public interest to oper operate within some degree of secrecy. Would you agree with that? Oh, I mean, I mean, I was, I, I, I've always been for many years well informed on the intelligence community. I can't go into that. I drew the line at this deplorable, disgraceful misconduct. It was unlawful. It 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 had a sizable effect on Commonwealth revenue. It, it had to be uh, dealt with, uh, and it, it was a ethical, moral duty uh, for me as a lawyer, um, as a loyal Australian, to deal with it. But not notwithstanding notwithstanding your view and the actions that you took on this. Um, I guess the question is, there's a balance to be struck uh, with the tensions between, you know, national security uh, and open justice, for example, in your case. You know, what is the solution and or is there one? 
there was never any national security in this issue. <laughs> There's no national security issue? Yeah, I mean, I realised during the secret hearings that this wasn't about protecting the government secrets. It was really about protecting the coalition from ridicule, public ridicule. If only the public had been at the one of the secret hearings to listen to the uh, the evidence. I think every informed political editor in the Australian media would have torn all of that issue to shreds. That's the very thing. By cloaking the issue in supposed national security secrets, the public are led to believe that there's some enormously risky issue out there. There was nothing risky about uh, the Dilly activity. It was inept dad's own activity that needed to be dealt with without any compromise of names, identities um, and techniques, not that they're not in any John le Carré novel. So then why hasn't... Grace... Sorry, Monica, go ahead. I was going to say, then why hasn't, if 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 that's the case, why hasn't Mark Dreyfus lifted the security limitations on you? I think he's waiting till Grant Donaldson, uh, SC, finishes his review of the national security legislation and um, hopefully um, there'll be reform and the provisions under which Christian Porter issued those orders will be uh, hopefully amended, uh, abrogated in part. But the catch-22 is that it'd be difficult for me to speak publicly uh, in that review while I'm subject to those orders. That sounds quite perverse. Bernard, a final question, if I might. Do you have any faith that the situation whistleblowers and potential whistleblowers face will change? I mean, how hopeful are you that the government will look to kind of harmonising the patchwork of legislation that we currently have? And could I get you to talk momentarily as well about the Public Interest Disclosure Act, which seeks to provide some protections for people blowing the whistle on wrongdoing? The PID legislation you've just referred to is not available to the 20,000-odd members of the Australian intelligence community in Canberra and other parts of Australia and abroad. So let me say that to start with. Mm. So in matters of urgent foreign policy and activity by our intelligence services abroad, um, there is no public interest disclosure provision for them and certainly none in the whistleblower legislation. Coming to more ordinary whistleblowers, has it been shown, for instance, that people have become reluctant to lodge their tax returns because Richard Boyle might have blown the whistle? We're not seeing any evidence of any damage or national security damage, revenue damage, damage to our medical hospital services by whistleblowers. We never, we never hear where the evidence is given that this whistleblowing has caused this this scandal, this loss to to hospital services, say, or corporate 
activity, national security. We're not told what the loss is. So what can the Commissioner of Taxation tell us about the damage to our income tax revenue has Richard Boyle caused? How about we hear about that? Because in every other sphere of legal activity, the court has given evidence of the loss, the, the damage, the injury. Where is that evidence? Of course, they don't give it. It's a cover-up nearly always. And so I don't see the chance for any decent reform coming out of whistleblowing and PID legislation, Monica, until there is a will to be transparent, to indicate that the revelation has compromised something where the balance isn't good, that is, that on balance it's best that there had not been a revelation, it should have been dealt with in-house. When, when we are told what damaged whistleblowers are doing, we might have some basis for understanding what the objection is to decent legislation. Bernard Collery, I thank you very, very much for talking to us here at the Centre for Media Transition. It's a pleasure, Monica. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We're back next week with more. In the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU and we're also on threads. I'm Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.